This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there. I hope you're all doing well. We're into July and I have finally finished my planting for this season. I have been working on creating native habitat in an area of my yard that contains clay soil. I have just planted natives that are renowned for handling clay soil extremely well. These include nodding onion, wild white indigo, golden alexander, and Canada milk vetch, all of which provide vital nectar and pollen to bumblebees. Now that we're heading toward mid-July, it's really too hot to plant anything. It's just too stressful for the plants. Now is the time to go kayaking and jump in the lake for a swim. And then start planning for fall planting. I think we've got a great show for you today. Today we'll be talking with Jen Ainsworth. She's the Executive Director of Wild Ones, an organization working hard to teach gardeners about the benefits of native plants, for birds and other wildlife. A new study in the journal Science is showing that songbirds are flexible in their migration strategies, especially over challenging regions like deserts and oceans. European scientists studied the behavior of the great reed warbler, a songbird that migrates 4,500 miles across ocean and the Sahara Desert twice a year. The research found the warblers were willing to ascend to extreme heights and altitude in order to avoid the searing heat of the desert, as well as storms at sea. The study showed birds migrating at heights of over three miles, sometimes tolerating freezing temperatures and scarcer oxygen. The surprising research also showed that the great reed warbler, a nighttime migrator that normally sleeps during the day, was willing to fly in daylight to cross oceans and deserts in some cases flying for up to 32 consecutive hours before resting. Scientists at the Lund University Laboratory in Sweden concluded that the birds survive their high-altitude flights because they have large hearts and air sacs attached to the lungs that allow them to maintain adequate oxygen levels. In addition, the exertion of flight keeps the birds warm despite the drastic drop in temperature. The researchers say all of the findings point to the possibility that birds may be better able to adjust to climate change than previously believed. A new study is showing that birds may have mastered the challenges of turbulence in the air and may even be using turbulence to their advantage while flying. Scientists fitted a golden eagle with a GPS transmitter to measure how much turbulence interfered with the bird's ability to fly. To their surprise, they discovered birds use turbulence as a source of energy they can use to their advantage. The Cornell University-led study shows birds are unfazed by turbulence. What was revealed was that birds are constantly adjusting and navigating changes in airflow and using the energy to propel themselves forward. 
The researchers concluded that further study of a bird's innate response and handling of rough air patterns could bridge the way for big improvements in the aerospace industry by helping engineers develop faster and more efficient ways to fly through turbulent conditions. And now let's talk about helping bumblebees in the native flower garden. To me, nothing says summer better than the pleasing hum of the bumblebee in a sunny native flower garden. These fuzzy teddy bears with wings play a vital role in the pollination of native plants, not to mention important food crops like tomatoes, squash, raspberries, and blueberries. However, some bumblebee species are in decline and could use some help from backyard gardeners. Bumblebees are often referred to as the gardener's friend due to their ability to go about their business visiting flowers undisturbed by your presence in the garden. They are solitary bees when flying about gathering pollen and nectar and do not swarm, only sting when provoked, and quite frankly, are fun to watch. Bumblebees are extremely social with each other and prefer to live in colonies in cavities under the ground. In very early spring, a queen emerges from her winter lair under the ground, sometimes when there is still snow present, and searches for an adequate space to build her colony. She may choose an abandoned animal burrow or an opening at the base of a stone wall. She lays her first round of eggs and feeds the larvae nectar and pollen. She will produce a colony of several hundred bumblebees over the course of the summer. This is where you can help by planting early flowering native plants and trees. The queens are often frantic for nectar once they emerge from the ground. A lack of early flowering plants can result in starvation of the queens and failed colonies on your property. Bumblebees draw sustenance from the blossoms of willow, maple, crabapple, American hazelnut, and northern black cherry trees. They are also attracted to clover, pussy willow, columbine, blue flag iris, bleeding heart, dandelion, mayflower, Jacob's ladder, pulmonaria, and geranium. As spring turns into summer, bumblebees also benefit from roses, viburnum, spicebush, spiria, bee balm, anise hyssop, toad flax, lobelia, penstemon, and milkweed. You can also plant annuals to help the bumblebees. These include zinnia, sunflower, cosmos, and morning glory. Herbs like rosemary, oregano, catmint, lavender, and borage are also extremely beneficial. Late summer and fall plants that help bumblebees include goldenrod, aster, joe pieweed, and boneset. Planting large clusters of these species rather than individual plants will make it easier for the bumblebee to find them. As always, please be sure your plants come from a nursery that does not use deadly pesticides like neonicotinoids and avoid cultivars. You can help protect bumblebees by limiting or restricting your activity in the garden until queens emerge from their underground dens in the spring. This usually occurs after five to seven days of a consistent soil temperature of 50 degrees. The soil's temperature can be taken by using a digital meat thermometer. Once this temperature is attained, it is safe to dig in the garden without harming the bees. Bumblebees are also sensitive to loud noise. Gasoline-powered lawnmowers and leaf blowers will drive them away from your property. Also, try to avoid the use of weed cloth or heavy mulch so bumblebees are not trapped underground. Bumblebees are buzz pollinators. This is a specialized form of pollination that is essential to 300,000 native plant species. 
the bumblebee vibrates in order to knock the pollen off the blossom, which it then catches on its hairy body and legs. Bumblebees are not honey producers like the honeybee. What they produce is for self-consumption by the colony. Not surprisingly, entomologists claim bumblebees are far better at pollination than the commercialized honeybee. Bumblebees visit flowers in cold temperatures and will even forage during cloudy and rainy periods, whereas honeybees are primarily active when it is warm, sunny, and dry. Their fat bodies allow them to carry larger loads of pollen, and their tongues are longer than those of honeybees, allowing them to access nectar from many more species of flower. Consider converting part of your lawn to meadow and plant patches of native flowers to provide nectar and pollen from the beginning of the season to the end. Providing a succession of plants from the very early spring until the fall will ensure that your bumblebees survive and nest on your property. At the end of summer, all bumblebees die, except for the newly designated queens. The queens find a hollow tunnel under the ground and prepare for a long winter's hibernation. You can help protect the queens in your yard by leaving the leaves in your garden as they provide protective covering from rain, snow, ice, and predators. Go to bumblebeewatch.org for more information. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'd like to introduce Jen Ainsworth. Jen is the executive director of Wild Ones, a nonprofit organization headquartered in Nina, Wisconsin. Wild Ones aims to promote environmentally sound gardening and landscaping practices in order to preserve and protect biodiversity. Wild Ones has over 60 chapters in 20 states and is looking to expand its range. Membership includes activities like native plant sales, native garden tours, photo contests, and gardening activities for elementary school children. Jen, I'm so glad you could join us today. Thanks for having me. So please tell our listeners all about Wild Ones, the organization, and what you do there. Yeah, so Wild Ones is an organization that promotes the use of native plants in uh, landscape settings. So that can be your urban landscaping that you're doing around your house or home, or we're talking about public landscaping or landscapes along highways and roadsides. So now where are you headquartered? So we are in Nina, Wisconsin. We operate out of a facility called the Wild Center, uh, which is on a 16-acre marsh area that we have a, a savanna and a prairie, a demonstration prairie, and we also have a turtle habitat nesting area there. Wow, that's great. So tell me, how did the Wild Ones organization get started? So it actually started from a group of folks who attended a presentation from Lori Otto from a Milwaukee Audubon Society group. And coming out of that session, they started talking about their passion and desire to promote native plants. And that was the very beginning of Wild Ones. And then in the early 90s, Wild Ones officially became a 501c3 focused on the education of native plantings. Great. And can you tell us some of the mission or some of the goals of the organization? Yeah, so we are a membership-based organization. We have the national office that provides national programming such as Seeds for Education, where we issue or award grants to educators across the country to plant native gardens in their school yards or whatever it might be. 
and great opportunity for kids to learn about native plants and just gardening practices. We just recently launched a native garden design website that shows homeowners how they can start incorporating native plants in their landscaping at home. So if you haven't checked those out, highly recommend doing so. We're also doing some webinar series where you get to ask the designers some questions. So check that out. For national programs, we we really try to focus across the United States. And then our chapters are responsible for delivering mission locally and in their communities. So they're the ones that you might do yard tours. You might have some projects. We had a a chapter that did a native planting in a roundabout. So the, the city was putting a roundabout in and they went in and they helped support native plants there. So it can be a variety of projects. They do plant sales. They do seed exchanges anything to get people locally interested in native planting. Wow, that's great. So tell me, how many chapters do you have now? So we have 63 chapters and five of them are what we call seedlings, meaning they just started out and they're trying to grow their membership base in their community. Now, do you have any chapters in New England? I do not think so. So if you're interested in starting a chapter, contact the national office. So you can reach out to us at info at wildones.org and we'll get you some informational content as far as how to start a chapter, how to start recruiting members, what do you need to be chartered, and all that fun stuff. That's great. Now tell me about you. How did you get involved with the organization? Yeah. So my background, um, I actually worked in a nonprofit prior to coming to Wild Ones. I'm very new to Wild Ones. I started in October and I had left my previous role because I had been interested in sustainability and you know how we as a society impact the environment. And I came across this role and I got really excited about it because I thought this was a really great marrying of my experience and my skill sets to personal passion. I've been very much into like reducing my waste and trying to have a minimal, you know, carbon footprint as I can for some time. So this was a great fit to join an organization that meant a lot against my personal mission. Now tell me, do you have a native garden at home? So I recently bought my home. I'm in my second summer here, so I have not gotten to much landscaping yet, but that is in my my plans to put in a native garden. That is great. So now with these workshops and classes that you give, do you offer certification to people through those or, or are they merely for education? So they're mostly for educational purposes. We have talked about doing some sort of, you know, certification or recognition program, but there's nothing nothing in place yet. The one thing that we do offer is if you have a native garden and you have 75% native gardens, we can certify or native plants. You can get your garden certified as a butterfly garden through Wild Ones. And then we'll also register your garden on the National Pollinators Network on your behalf. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, do you have a presence on Facebook? Can people look you up there? We do. We do. It's called Wild Ones Native Plants. Okay, that's great. So now, is there anything else you want to tell me about the organization that you think our listeners would be interested in? You know, when it comes to native plants, it's really the foundation of a lot of environmental conservation efforts. You know, when we think about the wildlife that surrounds our native areas, native plants are the beginning of that. They create the habitat environment for wildlife to thrive and survive. And additionally, they're also the best kind of plants to help the environment below the grounds. When we think about the quality of the soil and the impact of the soil, it's also enriching that. So if you want to invigorate your yard for the wildlife around you and for your soil, this is a great place to start. Well, that is wonderful. 
Well, Jen, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and for giving us all that wonderful information. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was great. I'd like to thank Jen Ainsworth for joining us today. You can find out more about the Wild Ones organization by going to their website at wildones.org. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And now for more of my personal story. Every winter, I was simply amazed at the number of injured and exhausted raptors that came pouring into the rehabilitation center. My mentor explained that the Florida Keys are a major part of the migration pathway for birds bound for Cuba, the Caribbean, and South America once the weather turns cold up north. It wasn't unusual to walk into the center and find the enclosures filled with broadwing hawks, sharp-shinned hawks, red-tailed hawks, and kestrels. Often, these were young raptors making their very first migratory journey south. They usually presented with emaciation and dehydration, and often just sheer exhaustion from the long flight. A few weeks of rest with fluids and food and some flight conditioning, and most of them were ready to be released so they could continue their journey south. But sometimes more serious problems were involved. Raptors who stopped to feed along the highly populated areas of Fort Lauderdale to Miami often ended up with internal hemorrhaging after ingesting a rodent that had eaten rat poison. It was during such a winter season that we received an odd rescue call. A woman on the Keys had looked outside in her backyard and seen something splashing in her in-ground swimming pool. She said it looked like a bird. I drove to the address and sure enough, there was a juvenile broadwing hawk thrashing wildly in the water, trying not to drown. I took the long-handled pool skimmer and fished him out as quickly as I could. I laid him out on a towel on the ground, and he lay there panting and gasping. He could not catch his breath, and that told me he had taken water into his lungs and would need emergency treatment immediately. As soon as I got him to the center, we warmed him up and administered medication to clear the fluid out of his lungs. A bird can only fly when there is adequate muscle along the keel. The keel muscle is what enables the bird to take off and remain airborne. When a bird is starved and then emaciated, the muscle can quickly become depleted and a raptor can literally drop out of the sky, which is what happened to this poor fellow. A few weeks of rest and food and this hawk was once again ready to take to the skies for his winter vacation in the tropics. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.